A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, uh, you're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham with me, Kevin O'Sullivan, on talk, on TV, on radio, online, and on your smart speaker. Coming up. Horror in Israel as Hamas terrorists massacre dozens of children and babies as airstrikes enter the fifth day. All that glitters is not gold. Drama for Starmer as his conference speech gets interrupted by a protester. And Holly Willoughby quits ITV after 14 years of hosting this morning. Now, uh, more on Israel. 17 UK nationals are among those dead or missing after Hamas's attack on Israel this weekend. The US has sent a team of technical experts to Israel to assist in the recovery of hostages in Gaza captured by Hamas. The terror group is believed to have kidnapped more than 100 people since their surprise attack at a music festival on Saturday as the death toll rises to at least 1,200 Israelis and 900 Palestinians. Writer and broadcaster Emma Wolf is with me in the studio. Hi, Emma. Uh, but first, let's hear the latest on the ground from our correspondent in Jerusalem, Gareth Brown. Uh, Gareth, uh, good morning. Uh, tell me more about this rescue operation. Well, it's a case of wait and see. There's still not exact information on how many people are missing. Um, you know, we're not even sure the authorities here know who's dead, who's possibly held hostage. Uh, I think there's, there appears to be two sort of parallel tracks going on here. One is obviously efforts to get hostages out of Gaza and into safety. But there's also this the, the planning and the buildup of what is expected to be a very, very substantial military operation, probably a ground invasion of Gaza, um, you know, likely by the end of the week. So those two things are happening separately, parallel, but they're also very much linked. I mean, I think the worry is that if... If this ground operation, um, you know, does begin in the coming days, then those hostages who are in Gaza could could really be at risk, especially if there's significant aerial bombardment by the Israeli Air Force. Uh, there's 173,000 soldiers, I think, in the Israeli army. They've got 300 reserve soldiers standing by. Uh, we're hearing uh, that a ground invasion, as you alluded to there, uh, is, uh, Gareth, is uh, imminent. Uh, what is the feeling about when these soldiers might start crossing the border? It could be any time. I mean, it takes a while. You, you know, you mentioned the soldiers there, but what Israel has done is they've brought back a, a huge number of reservists. And some of these reservists were in America, in Europe. They're all around the world and they've flown back to Israel. Uh, you know, they've been called to duty, perhaps 300,000, maybe even more. So these are huge numbers of soldiers. The thing is, you have to consider that Israel is really already stretched on two fronts. We have this buildup which is going around in Gaza. Now, the Israeli army est estimate that there are about 30,000 Hamas-linked fighters in Gaza. 
Now, urban combat is going to require a huge number above and beyond that if they're going to, you know, completely take control of Gaza, particularly the urban parts of it. Um, but then you've also got a, a very delicate situation on the northern border. Just this morning, there's been exchange of fire with Hezbollah, several Israeli soldiers killed. That's something that could spiral um, out of control. And, and then you've got the situation in the occupied West Bank, where many Israeli soldiers have been based over the last 18 months or so. There's been real problems there, uh, you know, a rise in, in, in settler violence, uh, attacks coming out of uh, Janine refugee camp and Nablus Old City. So the risk here is, okay, we can, we can look at Gaza in isolation. And these numbers sound massive. But, but very easily, this could spiral and you could have Israel facing a, a, a really significant conflict on, on two or even three fronts. And then the numbers, you know, they start to look a little bit more thin. Um, but, but it seems, you know, within the coming days, we're, we're going to see, you know, the launch of this ground invasion of Gaza. I think it's important to remember that the aerial campaign has already started. It started, you know, within hours of that Hamas attack on Saturday. And we've had nearly a thousand Palestinians killed within the Gaza Strip. And that's, you know, that, that's before the real operation has even started. So I think one thing we can be sure about is that this is gonna be a really, really bloody period and there's gonna be a lot of death. I mean, every day in every way, these stories emerging uh, from Israel get worse and worse and worse. And of course, yesterday uh, were the terrible revelations about this kibbutz in South Israel, uh, where they found uh, the beheaded bodies of uh, 40 kids, including babies. Uh, I mean, the people of Israel uh, must be in a mood of ferocious revenge. Uh, and uh, tell us a little bit about what the mood, I mean, it's obvious they must be furious, but I mean, these stories are extraordinary, unprecedented. Uh, what is the mood in Israel about what they're learning about this attack over the weekend? Yeah, I think this is a country still in shock, really. Um, you know, whatever the, the specific details of the stories are, I, th I think the dust really hasn't settled on this attack. You know, the numbers of dead are still going up. I think there's still probably areas where, um, you know, perhaps there are still bodies waiting to be found. Um, I was speaking to some military sources last night and they said, look, we, we can't rule out that there may still be um, Hamas fighters who, who crossed in on Saturday and they're still in the country, you know, lying low, perhaps waiting and they haven't they haven't pounced yet. Um, but, you know, there is a lot of there's a lot of grief, of course, there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of frustration, there's a desire for revenge, I guess. Um, the challenge is, is whether that is what, what leads this operation that's going to come back. Of course, there's going to be a very emotive, emotional response. Um, and we have to see how the government is, is going to channel that into a kind of military operation. Uh, indeed. Uh, Gareth Brown, our correspondent in Jerusalem, thank you so much for your time. Uh, excellent to talk to you. Uh, as I said earlier, with me in the studio is uh, writer and broadcaster Emma Wolfe. Uh, one uh, side issue to this, Emma, is apparently at midday today, uh, what are we, a couple of hours away from that, uh, Gaza will run out of power. Uh, so uh, perhaps not enough is 
being said about this blockade that they're going to, the Israelis uh, were responsible for a lot of uh, Gaza's water, their power, their base, the basics of life. They've cut them all off and they will not reinstate them. Uh, there's 2.3 million people in a 32 mile stretch of land. It is literally the most densely populated stretch of land in the entire, entire world. Now, without power, water, uh, food, I mean, it doesn't bear thinking about. It doesn't. You were talking to Gareth there about the mood in Israel. And I was also thinking, Kevin, about the mood in Britain and why this has struck such a, so deeply, why it's touched such a deep nerve, which is right, and as it should be, but with, with British people as well and around the world. I think that's very much um, to do with the links, you know, traditional links. Many, many people have, have Jewish friends and family or have travelled out there. Um, and you're talking about, you know, that, that the um, Gaza being effectively cut off in that way. Mm. Well, yesterday, Israelis were told to stock up on food and supplies for yeah. up to 72 days. So I think yeah. there's a real sense for everybody that this is not going to be short and sharp, that this is going to, you know, this is a, a, the looming ground, as you say, the imminent ground invasion, um, and that this conflict will worsen and deepen and go on for years. Mm. I and, and it's the individual stories that have been coming out. This isn't just faceless soldiers. This isn't just some military conflict that no one understands. It's the individual nature of the stories. It's the, it's the grandmothers, it's the babies, the young children, the, the, the parents of those 10-month-old twins, the, fest, the partygoers, you know. Mm -hmm. the, the Middle East is, is disproportionately young, under 19. Yeah, and uh, we will be talking to uh, one young man later in the show uh, who's indicative of lots of people all over the world. The thing about Israel is that the people of Israel have relatives in America, Britain, all over the all world. Over the world. Uh, and uh, they are personally experiencing this war. This guy we're going to talk to, you know, he's seen his family destroyed yep. over there in Israel. So uh, President Biden said yesterday, this is personal. Uh, and uh, for once in his life, he, he's right about this. The one thing he did say in his speech, uh, Emma, was... Um, that uh, Israel has every right to defend itself and to respond uh, vigorously, uh, but within the law. Now, I think that's going to be an interesting issue because Netanyahu and the people of Israel, uh, they're not going to worry about niceties in terms of their response to what they suffered over the weekend. Uh, as I say, I think they're totally justified in doing this, but they are going to unleash all hell on Gaza. It is going to be horrific to behold. Uh, this is going to get worse and worse and worse. It is, it? it is. And there is no sense of winners and losers in this at this stage. I think everybody feels that it's going to be bloody on every side and that it, you know, the longer it goes on, it seems such an intractable problem. And it seems to have come out literally out of a clear blue sky on Saturday morning. I mean, even the the world's most powerful intelligence services seem to have no idea. And I think literally people waking up or going to bed on Friday night, waking up on Saturday morning, mm. felt, felt shot around the world. We really were shocked. I mean, it came from nowhere. Came from nowhere. Uh, no one had any idea. Very unusual for Mossad and Israel not to have intelligence about what's going on in the Middle East. It's renowned as uh, perhaps the greatest intelligence This wasn't a minor the, attack. The, but they didn't know anything about it. And uh, the suggestion is uh, that uh, Netanyahu, Israel, the whole world have been lulled into a false sense of security, that uh, things were getting better in the Middle East, that uh, more and more Arab countries, including Saudi Arabia, were prepared to 
negotiate some kind of coexistence with the Israeli state. And that's what Hamas didn't like. That's what Iran didn't like. So they have, uh, I think, unfortunately, sadly, they have succeeded in their mission to destroy any chance of peace in the Middle East for a long time to come. I think for decades to come. And uh, I think we need President Biden of, of, well, among many international leaders to be on his game, if he has a game. He, 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 this is going to be a test for President Biden as well. You refer to his speech there. Mm. You know, we can't have him bumbling and shambling his way through this. This is The, the, the stakes are too high. Yeah, actually his speech was okay. Uh, it was okay. But, it, but the subtext of this, America saying, uh, Israel, you must do whatever you want. You know, you're, within you're, the... Yeah, yeah, but then the, the, the key phrase was within the law. America behind the scenes will be telling Israel, you know, don't go over the top here. Yeah. By but, all means respond, but don't overdo it. Uh, I suspect uh, that Netanyahu won't really listen to that. No. And um, in his immediate reactions on, sun on Saturday and Sunday, the rage was very, very clear. The, the desire, which one completely can understand, Absolutely. for immediate vengeance, for immediate reprisal, is completely understandable, but also was palpable. Isn't, you know, he's not going to... Uh, he's not pulling any punches. And to underline this, I mean, I keep explaining this, but, uh, you know, Hamas's mission, uh, you know, with the backing of uh, Iran, which funds... Uh, Hamas to the tune of millions and millions of pounds. Uh, their mission is to destroy the Israeli state, to deprive the Jewish people of having their own country. They want the utter annihilation, annihilation. Of, Is of Israel. Uh, they know in their heart of hearts. I mean, they're not negotiable on that. Yeah. There's no compromise. That Israel has to go as far as they're concerned. But they know in their heart of hearts that that can't happen. It won't happen. Uh, so their next best thing is a kind of situation of constant protest, constant conflict, uh, and this is uh, what they're going to do. This, this, this is the next best thing for them to getting rid of the Israeli state. It is inflicting horror but on the Israeli state. But it's horror state. on a deeply personal level. In, you know, parading a, a, a young woman's body through the streets, you know, spitting on, <sighs> on dead people, beheading babies, as you, as you refer to there. This is Slitting deeply, a grandmother's throat on Facebook. Deeply personal. And, you know, Kevin, we're in the era of social media. Yes, this decade, is, you know, these conflicts have been bubbling under for, for years, but now we see everything. We hear everything yeah. almost instantly. So I think the world is waking up to just what is really going on there. Well, these Hamas people, uh, they're terrorists, uh, as I keep saying terrorism is too good a term for them, the two-bit rapist. I'm glad you're brave enough rape, to use it. Because... Rapist, yeah. uh, baby-beheading thugs, that's all they are. They're not even worthy of the term terrorists. BBC's refusal to call, call them that is a national disgrace. Uh, uh, they've really got to get their act together on this. I mean, do they support Hamas or something? Which part of terrorism doesn't fit with the, uh, with the description of Hamas? Yeah. I mean, which... John Simpson, I'm going to be addressing this later on, he, uh, he said uh, if they started calling Hamas terrorists, it would mean the BBC was taking sides. Well, go, go and, on then. And? <laughs> go on then. What's your point? You're trying to be your point? Are you trying to be balanced on that issue then, yeah, BBC? Exactly yeah. right. Um, uh, but as you quite rightly said, Emma, uh, Netanyahu said this is going to be a long and difficult war. I think in the next few days we can expect the land forces to invade Gaza. And uh, where it goes from there, I mean, God only knows. I mean, what, what do you think uh, will happen in the months to come? Well, more death, more destruction, but people are going to be you know, trapped in their homes. People are going to be absolutely terrified. People are going to be starving and in desperate need of fuel and water and everything. So already 
the situation is dire and is only going to get worse. Yeah, and what about that rea the reaction back here? Uh, you know, people raising uh, Palestinian flags, uh, you know, demonstrating yeah, the streets, I mean, go Palestine, go Palestine, evil Israel. David Lammy I mean, last night addressing the Friends of Palestine conference. Yeah. What is the matter with these people? I mean, now is not the possible, time, Possible, possible future foreign secretary. Well, now it's not. To be fair, he, he has condemned the attacks, yeah, course, but uh, being friends with Palestine right now, I think it's probably important to stress that I don't think Hamas represent most Palestinians. No, exactly. That's uh, what I think. You know, they're, they're, they are not representative of what ordinary Palestinian people think. Uh, we mustn't suggest that the Palestinians are a nation of people who go around beheading babies. Hamas, just like Daesh, as the BBC used to call them, ISIS. Uh, they're just childish, juvenile thugs who are desperately trying to make their mark. They're just a, they're trying to get noticed. And these atrocities they committed were deliberately vile. They were deliberately provocative because they want they wanted uh, to provoke Israel into a ferocious. Uh, 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 a response and then uh, create the narrative, look, evil Israel is bullying us again. The whole world is against us, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, of course, it's so important to stress that the majority of the Palestinian people are not in any way you know, supporting or, or, or associated with, with these vile, vile, terrible um, Hamas attacks. And we've seen quite a few politicians, uh, obviously, of the left, saying, oh, well, you have to remember the backdrop to this, you mm. know. It is years of horrific occupation and mistreatment by the Israelis. Well, you know, OK, yeah, if that's what you want to contend, fine, that's your right to say that. But, you know, what we're talking about is a response uh, to an invasion on Saturday morning in which babies were beheaded, grandmothers were raped, uh, people were executed on their own doorstep. I mean, you could, now is not the time not to the be time. speaking up for Palestine. The problem is that the revenge on Hamas is going to affect, you know, yeah, everybody in the region, and that's the problem. It, this is, you know, it was already, um, it, it never was just a military conflict, and this is the problem. It's such, as you say, it's such a densely populated area. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, I wonder whether these protests have been have been over overexposed and over-publicised. There have been protests, yes, but I think the majority of people that you speak to are, are shocked and appalled and are not trying to defend Hamas in any way. We have seen lots on Twitter of people, you know, marching and posters being put up on lampposts and people saying, Sadiq Khan, why don't you do something about this? But it, you know, it isn't every, you know, I live in central London. I haven't seen people protesting and uh, condemning Israel. Uh, except they have been. I mean, you yeah. know, they're outside the Israeli embassy down near... Pocket, yes. Very, well, in pocket. You know, pretty, yeah, pretty uh, significant protest, you know, uh, but, you know, waving the flags as always. And they always say, well, it's Israel's fault. Uh, it isn't Israel's fault that they got invaded on Saturday. Mm. Uh, you know, it really isn't. Israel has a right to defend itself. Uh, but I suspect, as we've been discussing, Emma, it's going to do a little bit more than defend itself, as Netanyahu said, uh, Israel's response will change the Middle East forever. What do you think he actually means by this? It's frightening to think what he actually means, um, but I think it's the, it's the natural response of the shock and the, the, the feeling of just the, you know, your people being attacked in that way. Mm without any warning, without any preparation, without any attempt at negotiation or talking.
Welcome back. You are watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham with me, Kevin O'Sullivan. Labour Party leader Sir Keir Starmer made his big pitch to the nation yesterday in what could be his final conference speech before an election. However, the speech had a lively and unexpected start. Have a look at this. True democracy is citizen-led. Politics needs an update. We demand a people's house. We demand a people's house. We are in crisis. We are in crisis. Joining me to discuss this all in more detail is chief political commentator for The Independent, John Rentall, and James Robinson, founder of Woborn Partners and a former senior Labour advisor. Uh, let's start with you, John. Uh, out of 10, how successful was this conference for Labour and Sir Keir Starmer? Oh, well, it's been a, a 10 out of 10 conference. I mean, they were, uh, <laughs> Labour were gifted. 10 out of 10? Uh, the order of, well, yeah, because, I mean, I mean, nothing went wrong. Apart, I mean, even the protester uh, only, uh, only managed to, uh, to, to, to gain extra headlines for Keir Starmer. And the, the Labour Party um, uh, merchandise department rushed out T-shirts last night uh, with the with the banner headline uh, "Sparkle with with Starmer," um, I mean they've turned everything to their advantage. Uh, you know because they couldn't book the week before the Conservatives, which is what they usually do. Uh, they went the week after the Tories, uh, and it's worked out a treat for them. Everything's gone. Everything's gone their way. Uh, what about his speech? Uh, I thought uh, it was very much a rah rah rah. That almost shut speech. you up there, Kevin. <laughs> It was a rah, rah, rah speech. Uh, you know, I'm on my way to Downing Street. Everything's going to be brilliant with me. I mean, apart from uh, some old stuff about housing and how they were going to build houses on brown fields and not green fields, I don't know what that means. Uh, there wasn't much substance yeah. in it, John. There, there, wasn't, there wasn't even substance in the housing uh, stuff because the, uh, the IKEA's uh, spokesperson afterwards... Uh, had a dreadful job explaining how this was a fundamental change, but it wasn't actually going to fundamentally change anything because they weren't <laughs> going to legislate. Um, it was. Uh, it, 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 what's different about the Labour the Labour plan for housing is that they they're going to have a strategic plan. As long as they've got the word strategic in it, they think they they think that's job done. And I'm afraid they're going to find out the hard way that it isn't. Uh, indeed, uh, and they seem to be saying uh, uh, his big message to the people was uh, houses will be built where the people want them, not developers. What on earth does that mean? It's rubbish. Uh, <laughs> I'm afraid it's rubbish. And, it's, and it's, no, it's no different from what the Conservative government is already doing, as Michael Gove has pointed out uh, this morning. Uh, the Labour target of 300,000 uh, houses a year is exactly the same as the government's target. And uh, Labour's not actually proposing to do anything different. I mean, Keir Starmer says, yes, he will ignore local objections. But uh, how that is going to work in practice is, uh, is not clear. So we'll, uh, uh, we'll, we'll mark that one down as doubtful. Uh, doubtful. OK. Uh, James, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, what is your big takeaway for, from this conference? Well, I think the takeaway is that Keir Starmer represents stability, security and competence, as opposed to a Tory government, forgive me for sounding like I'm still a Labour advisor, represents chaos. And, and I think that tonally is what Starmer was seeking to convey and he succeeded in that. So I'd give him a nine out of 10 uh, because he can always do better. But I think um, that message was heard loud and clear by the party, but in the hall and beyond the hall. And I think that's all that, frankly, if he keeps doing that, 
there is he has got a chance of winning a majority which seemed un incredibly unlikely he four five years ago when Jeremy Corbyn led Labour to the biggest crushing election defeat for nearly 100 years. I would suggest, James, uh, that after 13 years of Tory rule, the country has got Tory fatigue. It's in the mood for change. Uh, and uh, the rise and rise, if you like, of Sir Keir Starmer is not really down to him. He's rising by default because people just want someone different. Uh, he's not the charismatic man of the year, is he, old Keir? No, but does it matter? I don't remember, you will all remember, well, many of us will remember that Winston Churchill described Clement Attlee as a very modest man with a lot to be modest about. <laughs> the matter, he won by a landslide. I think, I think we've been blessed in our life, or cursed maybe, I don't know, to have some big prime ministerial personalities, Blair, Thatcher, in my lifetime. That's unusual. We're reverting to the norm. And if, if Keir can convey professionalism and, and come across as a, a managerial, uh, someone who can manage the country well. Well, you said it yourself, Kevin. The country's sick of the Tories. It's fatigued. It's tired. It's fed up. They've got very little to show for 13 years in power. So, um, yeah, well, what I would add, what I would give it a nine out of ten, is that I, I do detect there's the slightest bit of complacency, a, a tiny tad of hubris, and that's dangerous. It's so dangerous because that can infect the party. And, and it can uh, cloud judgments. And I think that has to be stamped out. This majority, that or in order for Labour to win a majority, it has to win 130 to 140 seats. That's huge. Let's be honest, this is a huge task. So no complacency, no hubris, uh, but this was a great conference. And if it's the last conference before an election, it was a brilliant one to go out on for Labour and for Starmer. And uh, do you think that Keir deliberately kept his speech empty of substance uh, in order not to get in any trouble? Every time he opens his mouth uh, and says something substantive, it seems to uh, plunge him into a world of trouble, like his recent statements on the migrant crisis and so on and so forth. Uh, he's better off when he doesn't say much, isn't he? To find substance, I think. I think well, there wasn't I any was... substance in that speech, James. You know there that. Was, I would disagree. Okay. Okay. I, tell I, tell I me like, something substantive in it, then. I will tell you the substantive things in that speech. If you're Tory, vote Labour because we're safe and we are safe. That's not substantive. Safe, That's a slogan. Can I tell you why? Can yeah, I tell you on, why? I'll tell you why. Because he stood up and said Labour founded NATO, was a founding member of NATO. Can you remember? Imagine Jeremy Corbyn saying that. He, he privately wanted to leave NATO. That's substantive. To have Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer sitting in conference, leading the Labour Party. When I was an advisor, it was Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell. Now, if that isn't a substantive change, I don't know what is. Uh, John, uh, do you think that's uh, basically what Keir Starmer is saying? So Jeremy Corbyn used to say, if you vote for me, if you vote Labour, we will be very, very different from the Tories. Uh, Keir Starmer saying, if you vote for me, we'll be pretty much the same. Well, he's saying that and he's saying we'll be very different. So uh, <laughs> he's, he's trying to get the best of, best of, best of both worlds. Uh, but no, I agree with James. I mean, there has been a substantive change. But, but um, what, was, what was striking about Keir Starmer's speech is that he, he's not offering uh, substantially different policies from, from those of the government. I mean, he's just relying on the fact that uh, people are fed up with the government after 13 years. And as you say, Kevin, you know, he's, he's benefiting from the, from the Conservatives' Uh, managing to uh, managing to make a mess of almost almost everything. I mean, the Conservative conference last week couldn't have gone worse for them. It was uh, you know the HS2 announcement was was potentially quite popular, I think, but it was so badly handled 
that it ended up just looking as if the Conservatives uh, hated the North. And uh, that just handed, handed things on a plate to, to Keir Starmer. But in, in Keir Starmer's defence, because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a solid, uh, solid supporter of his, um, it has to be said that he has achieved a remarkable feat. I mean, to, to come back from that defeat in, in 2019, to be in the position where he is now, yes, of course, the Conservatives have, have, have done most of, the, most of the hard work, but you've got to uh, recognise the importance of not making mistakes in politics, and Kirsten was very good at not making, not making serious mistakes. OK. Uh, James, uh, in terms of mistakes... Uh Keir Starmer, before the conference at the weekend, gave an interview to the BBC. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze... Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. with Laura Gunsberg. Uh, talking about the Rwanda scheme. Now, the hypothetical uh, proposal was this, uh, that the government gets the go-ahead to start flying planes to East Africa. So migrants start going to Rwanda. Uh, the deterrent is noted and the boats are stopped. So we no more uh, dinghies or small boats coming across the channel with uh, illegal migrants on board. That's what the nation wants. Uh, Keir Starmer uh, was asked by Laura Kuhnberger, if that happens, uh, presumably you'll carry on with the Rwanda scheme. He said, no, 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 we will reverse it. So what he's announcing there is, if the Rwanda scheme works, uh, I will reverse it so the boats will start coming across again. Do you think that's a vote winner? Sorry, there's lots of distant butts there, isn't there? If it works, why do we think it's going to work? Nothing the government well, no, has but done. Suppose it does. Why is Keir Starmer well, saying he'll reverse it? Well, I think he would only reverse it if he had a different way of handling it. And he set out how he will handle it by using anti-terrorist legislation to smash the gangs of people, uh, people uh, traffickers that encourage people and, uh, to, to use small boats and uh, to get into the country. Look, if he can tackle it, great. I mean, it is quite, it, I mean, well, I was surprised to hear that. I'm not going to lie. I thought okay. if something worked, generally carry on doing it. But if he's got another plan, and whatever plan he's got it can't be any worse than this government's plan, and he can implement it successfully, then, you know, he'll have been doing a better job uh, than this lot. I suspect it's just one of those moments when a politician says something that he wished he hadn't said. Uh, John, if he does get into power uh, and uh, the Rwanda scheme is up and running and it's working, he won't reverse it, will he? <laughs> no, uh, you're absolutely right, Kevin. Uh, but, I mean, that's a big if. I mean, what, what Keir Starmer was 
uh, banking on in, in making that statement is that, is, is that he doesn't think, that even if it is ruled lawful by the Supreme Court, that it will work. Um, in the unlikely event that it does, because, I mean, and the reason it won't work is because, you know, each, each individual deportation will still be challenged uh, in the courts. I think there'll be, there'll be very few uh, people actually put on planes. Uh, and it's not necessarily going to deter uh, the, the boats anyway. But if it does work, in the unlikely event that it does work, I think, uh, I think Keir Starmer would find a way of, uh, of forgetting what he said. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, he has a habit of doing that, doesn't he, John? I mean, what about this reputation he's got, uh, James, for uh, flip-flopping? He does seem to say one thing. He's very much one of those politicians, you know, I have opinions. If you don't like them, I have others. Uh, he's getting a bit of a flip-floppy reputation. Is that a problem? Uh, I'm not sure. Not, I mean, basically, he's moved, hasn't he, from uh, someone who's further to the left and adopting some of... Corbyn's policies to someone who's far more in the centre, which is where the country is, by the way, uh, and has abandoned, quietly dropped some of those policies. There's a, you say flip-flopping, there's a clear, clear direction of travel. He's gone from the party that was way to the left and taken it further to the centre. That's not really, that is a clear direction of travel, and that involves some political uh, decisions which he's taken uh, and stuck by. I don't think, I think it's quite clear. We all know that Keir Starmer is not like Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, and, and the policies that Corbyn was associated with have been quietly dropped. That, that seems to me like a very sensible and pragmatic political programme to me. Let me ask you uh, a question about Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, a couple of days ago, uh, was filmed, he was caught by a camera crew, refused to condemn Hamas, uh, condemned the invasion, to be fair, said we had to talk, but he refused to condemn Hamas. Uh, he's already been thrown out of the Parliamentary Labour Party, but remains a member of the Labour Party. Uh, given this latest development, uh, you know, and given the fact that Jeremy Corbyn's line is still uh, the anti-Semitism problem in the Labour Party was exaggerated for political reasons, uh, and he's refused to apologise for that. Given these uh, uh, these truths, uh, is it time? Would it be a good move for Keir Starmer to say enough is enough? I hereby expel Jeremy Corbyn from the Labour Party. I think that would be a vote winner. Uh, I, I wouldn't disagree, but I'd rather, I'd quite like to see the people of Islington decide uh, what, whether Jeremy Corbyn should continue to be an MP. I don't know if he'll stand as an independent candidate against whether the Labour candidate is. I'd quite like the people, sounds a bit, sounds a bit uh, rhetorical, but I'd like people to decide rather than the party to decide. Um, I quite... I would quite relish a contest between Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour candidate in Islington at the next election, personally. Yeah, it'd be one to watch. Uh, James, great to talk to you, and thank you so much, John. John Rentall, their chief political correspondent for The Independent, and James Robinson, former senior Labour Party advisor. Since the fighting between Israel and the terror group Hamas began on Saturday, it is estimated that more than 1,200 Israelis and 900 Palestinians have been killed. Uh, meanwhile, more than 100 Israelis kidnapped by Hamas are still being held hostage in Gaza, with Hamas uh, threatening to broadcast the execution of one hostage for every time Israel targets civilians in Gaza without warning. A family member of one of those people being held hostage has taken the decision to join this program. His name is uh, Leo Perry. Uh, his father, Haim, 
Perry has been captured by Hamas. He is 79 years old. And his brother, Danny Darlington from Manchester, was killed by the insurgents at the age of 34. Uh, Leo Perry is uh, here on the line with me now. Uh, thank you, uh, Leo, for joining us. Uh, well, first of all, uh, an obvious question. Just tell me how you're feeling right now. I mean, the sense of loss must be epic and overpowering. Uh, yeah, hi, good morning. Uh, the, the senses are really uh, are strong. We are, for the last four years, we are trying to to gather information to to understand what happened. We're still not sure. We're still kind of in the dark, trying to mainly understand uh, what's going on. The, the 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 horror that was on Saturday morning uh, is still is still very hard to. It's still very hard to, to understand, to realize what happened. Uh, so mainly now this is uh, trying to understand the, the situation we're at. Uh, Leo, do, do, do you, I don't want to mm. dwell too much on the horrible details, uh, but do you know how your brother Danny was killed? Yeah, um, him and his, uh, yeah, a German girlfriend of his, a German citizen. They were uh, just. They were tourists. They were. They, they went to to visit the kibbutz. He has some friends there for the last few years. He was very in. Uh, was very in touch with the kibbutz. Although he was born in England, uh, he had very close friends there, and he went to visit them every year or two years. Uh, and they were unfortunate enough to 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 be there at that morning. He was supposed to come to me. I'm in Tel Aviv. He was supposed to come to my house at this noon, uh, and I would drop him at the airport. And in the morning, he texted me that something very bad is going on in Kibbutz. I knew that he was in a he was in a safe room. Every every Kibbutz in the in the Gaza region has a safe room. Uh, and he was there, and he was ordered. Uh, he was given orders. Uh, through the phone to, to, to stay inside and lock it, but probably, uh, as happened in many other uh, safe rooms in the kibbutz, uh, they managed to break in and, uh, and uh, shoot them, I presume. I'm so sorry for your loss. Uh, tell us about your dad, uh, Haim. Uh, uh, was he kidnapped from his home? Yeah. He was, uh, his houses are one of the the western houses so the the terrorists got there quite early and uh, they tried to to infiltrate to 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 go into the safe room several times he tr he managed to 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 deflect them uh, uh, a few times uh, but then he he understood that there's he wasn't strong enough to 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 keep the door so he hid his wife inside the safe room and went outside and like gave himself up and said, okay, take me. And they told him in English, uh, don't resist. We're not going to hurt you. And uh, by doing so, he actually saved his wife, which stayed in the room hidden, uh, uh, bent under behind a small sofa for uh, four hours, I think, until until the soldier came. So, uh he he, also, he managed to do last uh, act of bravery before uh, before he was taken. An extraordinary act of courage, uh, and now he's a hostage, of course. 
Uh, he's 79 years old. Uh, tell us a bit about him. I mean, is he in good health? Because this is quite an ordeal for anyone to go through. But uh, if you're pushing the age of 80, uh, it's a hell of an ordeal. Is he uh, in good health? Uh, do you fear for him? It, it, it is a big deal because not only him and uh, the, the, the vast majority of, of, of abductees from, from, from um, our community, at least, are kids, women, and elderly people. This is most of the, of the abductees. And all of the elderly people are not well. They are all on medicine. We, we try to, to send a message, uh, to send a list of, of, uh, of medicine that uh, they require. We send it to the Red Cross. We hope it will go through somehow. But all of them are in, uh, in not in good health, and they all need care in, uh, in a certain way. When, and we, we try to, to, to approach and to, to shout out as much as possible to anyone who is willing to listen to, to apply pressure on whoever is capable of doing anything that, to try and release or uh, do something about the, 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 the kids, the women and, and the elderly people. Uh, obviously, uh, I want to uh, ask you, as the son of someone who's been kidnapped by Hamas, but also as an Israeli citizen, uh, how are you feeling about what has happened since Saturday? I mean, the stories coming out of Israel are just horrific, uh, as bad as we've heard ever. Uh, the atrocities being committed, the beheading of babies, rape, people being executed on their doorstep when they open the door. H how are you and your fellow citizens feeling about this? It's, it's just quite extraordinary. Uh, unfortunately, we learned to take uh, those kind of news in a, in a limited uh, way. Uh, this is not what we're, we're focusing in now. It, it, it wouldn't do us any good if we focus on, uh, on the atrocity or, or the horrors that uh, are being shown or being told. Uh, we, we're mainly uh, asking ourselves uh, about the colossal, uh, 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 how do you call it, the problem with with no uh, no reaction from the army and no reaction from uh, from the any any kind of Israeli uh, intervention. I mean, they were there inside the territory of Israel for some of them even eight hours, some four hours, for hours and hours until they had some reaction. This is our main question now. This is the, what we're asking ourselves. But even this is less important for us right now than the retrieval of our, uh, of our uh, adopted uh, uh, people in Gaza. So we are less in the atrocities and horror stories. We're more into uh, doing and trying to shout out our word that, uh, to release the women, children and elderly, of course. Let me ask you a last uh, question, Leo. Uh, your father is being held hostage. We understand that these 100 hostages or so are being held underground somewhere in Gaza. Uh, obviously, your Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has vowed uh, a vicious revenge, ruthless revenge for what has happened, and most people around the world sympathise with that attitude. But uh, mm -hmm. if he goes uh, carpet bombing uh, Gaza, as we expect, plus the land invasion 
Uh, I mean, would you encourage the Prime Minister to go hell for leather with his revenge on Gaza, uh, even though your father, that may put your father and the hostages at risk? I was, I was born in front of the Gaza Strip uh, exactly 50 years ago. And I've seen all of the all of our uh, all of our history together, and uh, our dear Prime Minister has been promising to erase Hamas for the last 20 years. Uh, we all know exactly. There is no need to pretend. We all know exactly that it's going nowhere. We all know the cost of of uh, of infiltrating of, of sending troops out on the ground to Gaza. We all know the cost. Hamas is expecting it. Uh, uh, unfortunately, I'm not one taking the, the the decisions, but it's clear to me that if somebody is trying to achieve this uh, a different result with doing exactly the same mistake over and over again, there's something wrong with his uh, perspective. Uh, that's the way I see it. I think Israeli and uh, Hamas should open... Uh, Uh, humanitarian uh, uh, passage and uh, do first of all the exchange of uh, of, uh, of uh, captured that's that's the first and more foremost important thing they can do the, the carpet bombing of Gaza like so many people are now wishing will only lead to more death and to more vengeance and to no future whatsoever this is Definitely not my way, not the way of, uh, of the people I'm here with. Uh, we are urging everyone to stop the war who hasn't started yet uh, and uh, okay. focus on bringing back the hostages and finding a long-term solution to this problem since the solution that's been uh, Uh, tried until now for the last 20 so years are not working and producing the same result over and over again. Absolutely. That's... Leo, Leo um, listen, yes. uh, I'm so sorry for your loss and our thoughts are with your father and thank you very much for talking to us. A very brave of you. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham with me, Kevin O'Sullivan. Woke ideology has been slowly infesting universities for years now, but now the University of Buckingham is offering a new course, Woke, the Origins, Dynamics and Implications of an Elite Ideology. The creator of that course is Professor Eric Kaufman, and he joins me now. Uh, welcome, Eric. Uh, but big fan of your course. <laughs> Spent a lot of my time railing against wokery, woeful wokery. Uh, first of all, uh, it says here in my notes, you're a cancelled professor. <laughs> The world's gone. What is a cancelled professor? Anyway, we, I think we all know what we mean by that. Uh, in what way were you cancelled? Right. Well, I guess it's probably better explained as a cancellation attempt. Um, so, yeah, basically radical students at the university where I taught for 20 years. Which the university? Birkbeck College, University oh, right. of London. Yeah. 
Um, so, you know, you had radical students and some radical staff who were sort of trying to organize as well as getting social media allies to try and get me out. So they had a couple of... So what, was, what was your crime? So, so the crime was essentially, yeah, criticizing movements that speak in the name of anti-racism or, or you know, anyone who's Virtue sort of advocating on that yeah. puts you in the crosshairs. Even something like retweeting, so a lot of it's on social media, retweeting... Justin Trudeau not being able to say LGBTQ, for example, and making a joke out of that. You know, that's seen as... dare you. Yeah, exactly. Um, or any criticism of Black Lives Matter or that kind of thing. But, yeah, there was this sort of attempt, and then there was a staff member who left, who's a real radical, and who left, uh, wrote, did this great big write-up saying, I'm the reason she left, and, you know, isn't this guy terrible, and the university has to do something about it. So, so that is sort of... Now, it sort of just led to awkwardness with colleagues. It wasn't as though... I mean, the university didn't act badly, but it just sort of created pressure and was a factor in me wanting to leave. So, I mean... I don't want to dwell too much on uh, your history at Burbank, yeah. but I mean, what were you doing? Going around sort of saying, uh, down with Black Lives Matter. What, 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 what exactly did you do to yeah. incur uh, their <laughs> wrath? Well, it's a series of things that get accumulated into your portfolio. So it starts out with, I was involved in a debate which had, you know, David Aronovich and Trevor Phillips and Claire Fox about is ethnic rising ethnic diversity a threat to the West, question mark. None of us took that position, but it's a foil for debate. This is the idea of attracting uh, people to a debate. They didn't like that. And then it was uh, a, a number of tweets that were, for example, this Justin Trudeau tweet. There was a tweet about... I, I had, there was a, an oversize, a plus-size model on a, a fitness magazine, and I simply... I did, it wasn't critical. I just said... This is very interesting historically. What explains this? Here are a couple of theories. Again, that was putting me in the bad book. So it's all of these kind of things which can be spun, and then they try and get you to see the dots a certain way, and then they launch internal complaints. So that's the more serious part, is these people can then get you investigated. Uh, which, oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is the... Yeah. the, the worst, I mean, the trouble uh, with uh, our culture today, as I always say, we live in the era of the accusation. The accusation is enough to ruin your life. Uh, the accusation doesn't have to be proved. I just say, you said this, you are bad, and ergo, you become bad. Uh, that is the madness of it. But anyway, you're out of Birkbeck now, uh, and you're at uh, Buckingham University, and uh, you've started this anti-woke course. And you call it uh, an elite ideology, uh, wokery. Uh, explain that. Yeah, I mean, it's not an anti... I'm not taking a political position, but it's it's simply to say this is something that needs to be studied, and it's it not does. being studied, and it's having big impacts on our culture, and it's deciding elections more in the U.S. than here, but it's still making a difference. So we need to be studying this quite critically and seriously. Um, you know, what is woke? I always have a one-sentence definition, which is the making sacred of historically marginalized race, gender, and sexual groups. That is woke in a nutshell, which then, from that a whole bunch of things follow. So, for example, if you are seen to be criticizing uh, or, or offending in any way a hypothetically sensitive member of one of these groups, you are blasphemous and therefore must be canceled. <laughs> but why, why is it elite? Um, it's elite because it comes out of sort of... It's, this incubates in academia in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. It comes out of quite elite 
academic theorizing. You need to have enough money and enough time on your hands to be woke. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, to some extent. I mean, it's not so much correlated with income and money. It's, it's more correlated with level of education. But even there, it's, that isn't enough. It's, you have to be exposed to these kind of radical centers of this ideology. But then we hit the 2010s and it breaks into the media in corporations and elsewhere because of this. What social media does is it allows for cross-fertilization of radical academia with mainstream institutions. It's a problem with wokery, right? So your course uh, is a good uh, fight back against it. Uh, I would say wokery uh, is a perfect, uh, today's wokery is a perfect topic for a brilliant sitcom on television, say <laughs> the BBC or ITV. Uh, why do you think uh, we don't see anything like that? Because it, it is ripe to be done. Uh, uh, but they're terrified, aren't they? They're all uh, part of the same uh, uh, repressive syndrome, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, there's really two facets. One is the fear. Uh, what some have called, you know, some people say people are just scared to speak up, the spiral of silence. But there's the other part of it is there's, there's a lot of people who are kind of convinced if something has a label that says anti-racism or gender affirming on the tin, a lot of people will say, well, how can I be against that? It just sounds so good. And the way these ideologies package themselves is through a euphemism like gender affirming or anti-racist. And underneath is something very illiberal. Yeah, that's right. If you, it's, it is uh, illiberalism incarnate. And if you criticize uh, one of these woke warriors, you know, who say, oh, I'm anti-racist, you know, uh, they say, well, that means you are a racist. And no, it doesn't. <laughs> right. It doesn't at all. Uh, tell us about academia, uh, which is, you know, the uh, breeding ground of extreme wokery. So professors, students, lecturers, you know, these people are deans of colleges. These people are supposed to be intellectual. They're supposed to be clever. And yet when it comes to wokery, they are, act like a bunch of total morons. Somebody once explained to me about uh, academia, and I said, well, why aren't they cleverer? Why are they so stupid? He said, uh, because they are all members of a cult. Uh, would that uh, chime with you? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's, that's drawing it a bit too sort of black and white. I think there's a few shades of gray. You have a, a, a hardcore 10 to 20% perhaps that are completely on board cancel culture, particularly younger people in academia. Uh, you know, some of the older academics, older leftists are a bit more skeptical, but they're not willing to speak up. Um, and, and this is partly about... They've all got a li living to earn, right? <laughs> yeah, that, and they don't want to sort of... Because academia leans about, or at least the social sciences and humanities, it's about nine to one left to right. So a lot of these people are on the left. They may not love the cancel culture, but they're not comfortable giving ammunition to their political enemies. And so they don't say anything. And so this thing just metastasizes. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's gotten pretty bad. Um, and there's two problems. I mean, one is you get people weaponizing the disciplinary apparatus to investigate wrong think. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the radicals. But then you also have, because of this 9-1 slant, uh, you have a certain supportive structure of people who aren't willing to challenge this ideology. And it creates a lot of peer pressure. So if you're outed as a conservative, that can be really career limiting for you. And why, uh, uh, you know, why do the proponents of wokery support uh, the suppression of debate? You know, why are they so antagonized or, you know, terrified of people who might not agree with them? I mean, this is totalitarianism. What is wrong with them? <laughs> well, it all stem, I mean, crudely put, they put 
equality of outcome and not hurting feelings above free speech. So their value system just prioritizes those things Don't be offensive. above freedom. Offensive. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So hurting feelings becomes a microaggression, becomes emotional trauma, becomes somehow upholding a system of oppression in their worldview. Uh, you know, and I think there's very, you know, there's no evidence for this. There's no attempt to say, well, geez, maybe people are actually being uh, ideologically sensitized to to being a victim. And once you actually tell people they're victims, they'll start thinking like victims. A word in support of the kids, if you like, and uh, that this is bearing in mind that not all students are young. Right. But uh, let's talk about the younger students. I think that uh, in the press they get a disservice because everyone's like, all these students, all these campus kids, they're woke lunatics and so on and so forth. But uh, they're not, are they? Uh, most of them are, you know, perfectly normal people uh, who uh, get tarred with the same woke brush as, uh, as the extremists. Most students aren't like this, are they? I think most are, are more moderate, but I don't want to underplay the crisis that, we, that liberalism faces. I'll just give you an example. If you take, and it's not just students, there's not much difference between young people who aren't at university and those who are. If you ask them, should J.K. Rowling be dropped by her publisher, they break about 50% yes for 50% no, whereas anyone over 50, it's like only 3 or 4% would agree to that. We do have a problem of moral absolutism and growing illiberalism amongst the younger population, uh, especially younger women, but still generally in the younger population. And we have to turn that around. I think it starts in the, uh, the school system, by the way. Once, once they step on campus, their views are largely formed. Well, listen, Eric, uh, good luck with your course. It sounds excellent. I would sign up for it, but I'd be <laughs> too stupid. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.